Well, good morning. morning. Let's get started. Grab your Bibles. If you don't have one, there's some out in the lobby you can grab and make your way uh, to Matthew uh, chapter 6. We're actually going to pick up in the last verse of chapter 5. But if you can get to chapter 6, you can find chapter 5. So uh, that'll work. Start making your way there. So good to be able to gather together again this morning uh, to continue to work through the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, the greatest sermon ever preached. And so uh, normally I get pretty quickly to the text. Uh, that's kind of my, my MO. But this morning, um, if you'll give me some grace, I'm going to take a little bit uh, more time launching the plane, so to say, uh, because we're going to talk about a lot about the gospel on the front end, and we'll also get to the gospel at the end as well. But I want us to understand the heart of where we're going into ahead of time, uh, which is a jump into the waters of what the gospel really means and, and the heart of what Jesus is saying um, in the Sermon on the Mount. So we're going to pick up at the end of, verse, uh, ch- of chapter 5 in just a minute. Uh, well, Pastor Matt ended last Sunday because uh, verse 48 of chapter 5 is one of those verses, uh, is really the verse in the Sermon on the Mount that is kind of the fulcrum on which the entire Sermon on the Mount teeter-totters. Uh, anybody remember teeter-totters? Okay, so no, come on, let's teeter-totter, okay, okay, let's make sure, man, there's a, anyway, I know who my audience is, okay, um, so that one verse is kind of where the, the fulcrum of the Sermon on the Mount in the sense that if you read verse 48, in that one verse, Jesus sums up the heart of the entire law, and he sums up really the heart of God's righteous requirements for all those who would be in a relationship with him, and it really sums up this paradoxical nature of the gospel itself. So Matthew 5, 48 says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So if we hear those words from Jesus and we just let them pass over and we don't marinate on them, then we're not feeling the weight of what Jesus is actually saying. You must be perfect as your Father is perfect. Those are heavy, gravity-filled words with a lot of magnitude. Jesus is not making a nonchalant statement. He's just kind of passing, not just passing through. He's saying, you need to understand the truth of what I just said. He's not mincing words. He's very clearly, deliberately throwing down the gauntlet of what God expects and demands. He said, God demands and expects from those who are his followers and those who have been in relationship with him, nothing short of perfection. And see, that's the paradox of the Sermon on the Mount. And that really is a paradox of the Bible and the gospel itself. Now, I don't want to pretend everybody knows what a paradox is, so I'm going to give you a definition to help us understand why I'm using that word. So here's, here's a couple ways to understand what a paradox is, to give some light to what I'm talking about. A paradox is a statement or a proposition that seems seemingly absurd or self-contradictory at face value. A statement that seems to lead to a conclusion that could be illogical, unacceptable, or senseless. But the other side of a paradox is this. Though it may seem illogical or contradictory, once investigated or explained, it may prove well-founded in truth. So here's some paradoxical statements that you have used and I've used. Less is more. This statement is false. Okay? I am a compulsive liar. Let's think about it for a second. Let's say, okay. This is the beginning of the end. And here's the one we may say today. Nobody goes to that restaurant. It's too crowded. It's a paradox. Right? It's a paradox. I believe... Jesus' words in verse 48 is a paradoxical statement. Because before you get to verse 48, for those first 47 verses, including the Beatitudes, which we spent a lot of time on, Jesus lays out in great detail and specificity, this is what it looks like to be a part of the kingdom of God. These are the characteristics, the attributes, the hallmarks of those who are my followers. And here's some of them. You must be poor in spirit. You must mourn your sin. You must be meek and merciful, pure in heart, a peacemaker, living as salt and light. And then he makes that statement, 
in, ver- in chapter 5, you must have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees to ever enter the kingdom of heaven. As Pastor Matt talked about last week, a righteousness that goes beyond just the letter of the law to the point of what is the heart and the spirit of the law. A righteousness that helps you understand if I'm angry with my brother, that's murder. If there's lust in my heart, it's adultery. So this righteousness would even move you to love those who hate you. And Jesus says it has to be greater than the scribes or Pharisees. Well, who are those dudes? They were the top shelf rule makers and keepers of the day. They were the elite of the elite, the Navy SEALs of religiosity in the Jewish world. And they did everything by the book. So much so, they were so religious, they took the Old Testament and they added to it so that there were 613 commands that they would seek to adhere to every single day. So they're trying to set this lofty standard that nobody could get to and how awesome they are because they're the ones who seem to set the precedent for everybody. And so when we hear Jesus' words, you're like, who can ever, Jesus, be that perfect or that righteous? That seems absolutely impossible. You see, here's what some people believe. They think God grades on a curve. Some of you are like, man, I'm so glad that my teacher graded on a curve, but we know God does not grade on a curve. God does also not give group credit, Right? doesn't get group credit. He doesn't make concessions. He doesn't make compromises. He doesn't give you special extra credit for being an awesome kid or that you're better than your neighbor. The world wants to say those things are true, but they're not. So if God requires perfection, then knowing our own sinful, wicked hearts, we know at our best effort at holiness, we are in trouble because we can never meet the perfect standard of righteousness Jesus has described. But that's the point, and I want you to get this, that is the point of not just the Sermon on the Mount, that is the whole point of the gospel. That it is impossible for you to do it. It's too high, it's too lofty, it's too hard, it is too holy of an expectation requirement that we can ever attain. And there's a good reason, because it reveals to us, apart from God, you cannot do this. You are doomed and helpless and hopeless. You see, that's where the paradox of the gospel and the paradox of Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount come to play. So if Jesus is saying, these are the supreme expectations that are necessary, that means they must be possible in some sense. If Jesus is saying, these are the non-negotiables of those who are in the kingdom, these are the marks of those who have been adopted into the family of God, that must mean that by some way, shape, or form, there is a superior righteousness available to sinners. There must be a way for all that God is saying in his word to be manifested in us. And we know, thanks be to God, there is a way. But here's the reality. It's not what we would assume it would be. You see, the way forward is not for me and you to work harder and do better. The way is not, I've got to grab my religious bootstraps, pull them up, tie them tight, clench my teeth, white knuckle this sucker towards some obedience. The way forward is not, Well, those are some holy hoops Jesus has given me. I'll do this, that, and the other. I'll jump through them. I'll get this, and I'll somehow get on God's good side. You can't do it. You see, Jesus is saying there's a way forward, and it's pretty simple, but it's also incredibly costly. Because the the way forward is to admit you can't do it, to acknowledge your sin, to face your own frailty and your own sinfulness, and that God's standards are far beyond your abilities, and that your sinfulness has separated you from God's holiness, and there's an immeasurable gap in between that you will never jump through, and the paradox is God came to where you are. That's why the gospel is beautiful and scandalous and paradoxical, because God supplies what he demands. 
want you to hear that. God always supplies exactly what he demands. And if God says there is a perfection that's required, he's saying that because he'll provide it. And he's saying a perfection is available through a perfect son who will come and keep the letter and the spirit of the law, who will walk in perfect obedience to the will of God, who, because he is perfect, will live the life you should live and can't live and die the death you deserve in your place. And then because God demands holiness and justice against all sin, Jesus will come, take, lay his life down to atone for all of my sins and be a sacrifice and fulfill God's righteous requirements, both by fulfilling them correctly and by taking our wrath for how we don't. That is the heart of the gospel. And that Jesus then says, here is my righteousness that you have to have to be acceptable to my Father, and I'm going to credit it to your account. That is the truth of what Jesus is saying in these words. That's why we sing, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Or, oh, the wonderful cross. And that is why those words, when you think about the songs that we sing and we read God's word, we think about the gospel is magnificent, but it's also humbling. And it's scandalous that God would give a perfect son for a sinful human. It doesn't make sense that God would do that, that through Jesus, sinners can be made right with God and adopted and restored and reconciled. So as you read through the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, we need to be reminded that apart from Jesus, none of it's possible. You can't do it. I can't do it. But because of what Jesus has already done, everything in the Sermon on the Mount can be lived out by those who believe. Okay? You can't jump through the hoops to gain salvation. But if you've been given salvation through what Jesus has already accomplished, you are called to live these things out. These commands that Jesus has given us throughout the Sermon on the Mount, what it means to be a follower of him. And here's the beauty of the gospel as well. That on my very best day, where I lead seven people to Jesus, read my Bible for four hours, pray, give to missions, help old ladies across the street, God loves me exactly the same as on the days I do none of that. I sit at my house. I'm impatient with my children. I don't open God's word, and I'm selfish. He loves me the same on both days because he loves me because of Jesus. Some of us need to hear that today because you walk around in guilt all the time because God doesn't love me. I'm so, I didn't read my, you need to read your Bible, and you need to pray, but it's not based on your performance. If it's based on your performance, nobody gets in. It's based on what Jesus has already done on our behalf. But there is a problem that we're going to address in our text today because here's the reality. Even though we may be redeemed into God's family through the perfect work of Jesus, we still have sinful hearts that want to do sinful things. And today we're going to talk about things that we do that actually are meant to bring glory to God that we twist and make them about us. We're going to talk about things that God has given us that are meant to be used to rightly bring him glory and praise, holy spiritual good things, and we will take them and try to steal God's glory from him in them. And Jesus is going to address the heart and the motives and the desires behind the things that we do and why we do them. Because he knows we're sinful, and he knows that we are broken, and he knows that we are so prone to take a righteousness we did not earn and take that righteousness to get glory for ourselves. So here's what we're going to do. If you'll stand with me, Matthew chapter 6, we're going to read those verses. We got the plane off the ground. Now we're going to jump in. If you'll track with me, let's read God's word, verses 1 through 18. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. 
Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received the reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they receive the reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret, he will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, and their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your heavenly Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret, he will reward you. Father, this morning, our prayer is that what we know not this morning through your word you would teach us, that what we have not that you would give us, and that what we are not you would make us. And that the Spirit of God who lives in us would through the word of God that we have read and that we're about to study reveal to us very clearly this morning in a way that brings transformation. The Son of God, whose name is Jesus, in his name we pray. Amen. Beware. I just want to say, get you for a moment as you sit down. <laughs> Jesus says, beware. Now, when you see a sign that says beware, it normally says of dog or of sharks or of steep cliffs. You normally don't keep moving ahead because you'll die, right? So when Jesus says beware, it's purposeful. He's issuing a strong warning that was not able to be passed by. Beware. To all the crowd, those that were in the crowd, Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, his followers, people that are interested, beware of putting your righteousness on display like a performance so that people give you mad props for being super sick awesome. Beware of shining the spotlight on yourself. Beware of endeavoring for the appraise and applause of other folks. Beware of getting caught in the trap of trying to impress people especially when you do spiritual things like giving, praying, and fasting. So why is Jesus going to shine the spotlight on giving, praying, and fasting specifically? They're not all the spiritual disciplines. There's some of them. They're not all of them. Because those three were the three most important religious activities to the scribes and the Pharisees. So Jesus is going to hone in on them because he is going to simultaneously say, here's the right way to live those out. Here's the wrong way to live those out. And he's going to use them as an example of what not to do. But notice what Jesus says. He assumes believers will do those three things. That's why he says when you pray, when you give, and when you fast. Not if you do those things. So believers should be doing these things. And Jesus says when you do them, this is what it should look like. So back verses 2 through 4, he talks about that when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet as the hypocrites like to do in the synagogues in the streets that they may be praised. They've received their reward. 
When you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So one of the prevailing marks of the believer should be generosity. It's on the board over there. We see it. We know it. Why should believers be generous? Because you have tasted the generous goodness of God. That's why believers should be far more generous than any other human being on the planet because you have been forgiven a tremendous debt. And out of that, out of joy, you want to give out of what God's entrusted to you because he's been so generous to you in Jesus. So believers should be open-handed, meeting needs when we see them, living sacrificially. So what Jesus is talking about in this text is not what we come to think about tithing. He's not specifically talking about tithing in this sense. He's talking about what is called almsgiving. I don't know if that's regularly any word you lose in your house. Carla, let's go to church for almsgiving. Like we don't normally use those words, but in this context, he's not talking about specifically tithing. He's talking about how we use our funds, our monies, our resources to meet the needs of the less fortunate and the overlooked and the marginalized. So throughout Scripture, if you read the Bible, you know God cares about those in need. In the book of Ruth, Boaz says, Do not glean to the edges of the field because the poor and needy need food. Leave that for them. So when you read the Bible, you see over and over, God says, I care for the least of these. My people should care for the least of these. They should be generous and compassionate. We see this specifically in Matthew chapter 25, where Jesus uh, tells this parable, this story about when he comes back in the second coming, he says, there's going to be the sheep and the goats. The sheep are my followers. The goats are the ones who aren't my followers. And when they gather there, he said, this is what I'll say to those who are my sheep, who are my followers. And notice what he uh, praises them for. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. And I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. And I was in prison and you came to me. And notice their response. Then they will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? And when did you see we see a stranger, you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did to me. And if you know the story, he says to the goats, you did none of those things. Depart from me, you wicked. I mean, it's, it's really terrifying when you read that passage. So it's evident that Jesus cares about the unfortunate, the marginalized, and the downcast. And it matters that we care about them. And not, the, not just that we care about them, but how we go about caring for them. And the problem is Jesus said there's a right way and a wrong way to be generous. And he's going to address them both. So in Jesus' day... Uh, the act of almsgiving, uh, it, one uh, quote said, they had been carried to an absurd, unbiblical extreme by the rabbinic tradition. One Jewish religious book taught this, literally. It is better to give to charity than to lay up gold, for charity will save a man from death, and it will expiate or cover all of his sin. So that literally says, if you give, you will have your sins atoned for. Who, so what does that mean? If I have a lot to give, then I'm impressive. And so it's laying up this hierarchy amongst the Jewish community that is teaching false doctrine to them that if you give, you're giving to cover your sin because it's about you and I'm going to give because I'm awesome. It's messed up theology and unfortunately, people today still believe these things. See, Jesus talks a lot about money. This sermon is not about money. I don't want you to get up and leave or feel like, you know, trying to come for anything. But Jesus talked more about money than he did about health. And why? Because money is a powerful, powerful motivator. And everyone can relate to having money or not having money or wishing you had more money or 
I don't think anybody's ever said, I have too much money. I don't think anybody actually ever said that. But Jesus knows, hear me, that there is no other thing on earth that we will look to for validation and significance more than money. That we will look to and try to find our dependency on what we have more than what we need from God. Jesus addressed this specifically in Matthew chapter 19, where he said, Only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. And when Jesus said that statement, his disciples were, had their minds blown. Because in that context, I just read that quote a minute ago, the religious leaders said, If you are wealthy and you have riches, those are evidences that you are a great person. God's impressed with you and his favor is upon you and you deserved it. And they had influence, and they had money, and they had possessions, so they were the ones that were also being esteemed. So let's just think bigger picture. Why do a lot of people just give in general? I mean, not just to churches or charities, but even philanthropically. Why do people give? A lot of times people give, maybe when they give from a charitable standpoint or from a religious standpoint, they give to cover up guilt. I did something bad, let me give some money, I feel better. Some people say, some people may believe, I'm going to give some money, grease the palm of God, purchase a little salvation. Maybe people give for recognition. Some folks give large gifts to organizations, charities, because they know their name will end up on a pew or a building somewhere. Some people give because they want their good deeds to outweigh their bad deeds, and surely throwing money towards God will help the divine scale tip in their favor. That's not exhaustive list of why people, some give, give for, people give for very noble reasons, but some folks are motivated for very different reasons. And when Jesus makes these statements, this prevailing paradigm of the day, it's kind of blown up when it comes to giving. Jesus says, don't do these things. Don't sound a trumpet. And you're like, who would ever do that? We'll talk about it in a second. Don't sound. And like, nobody walks in, here's my gift. I get that in our day. But in that day, it was different. Don't blow the trumpet. Don't get attention. Don't bring attention so everybody sees how merciful and gracious and superior you are to them. But what was happening in that day, it was common that the trumpets in the temple would be sounded calling people to a place of giving. Okay? They would sound, folks would begin walking towards the temple, and people would make a big deal, and they would zealously grab the robes and, and make great haste to show off how great they are when they got to the temple. And Jesus calls these folks hypocrites. We'll get there in just a second. And a hypocrite literally is someone who is two-faced. It's an actor who during the same play would wear two different masks. And Jesus said these folks are hypocrites. Because there's an outward appearance of godliness, but inwardly this is all about their own selfish endeavors. He says, the reality is, and here's the deal, how many people would self-identify as a people pleaser? Okay, listen. People are like, I'm a people pleaser, I can't raise my hand, the people will judge me because I can't do that. <laughs> I am self-identified a people pleaser. I am. I know it, I wrestle with it, it's true. But here's the reality, the praise of people is a powerful intoxicating motivator. Correct? It is. Every, I've never met one person who hates to be recognized or given applause or acclaim. Not everybody wants to be brought up on the stage, but everybody likes recognition. Everybody likes a spotlight every once in a while. Everybody likes people at some point to be impressed with how great they are in some way, shape, or form. So it's interesting that we have the capacity to take something as pure as giving to help meet the needs of others and make it about us. And Jesus says that when we give with this type of a selfish heart, the only reward we get is the applause of the people around you. And the way we know that is the technical term Jesus uses here is a technical term for a commercial transaction. 
and it means you receive a sum in full and you get a receipt for it. So in that moment, you get a receipt saying, that was great, and that's your only reward. That's it. There's no heavenly reward after that. So Jesus is saying that when we give so that other people see us do it and try to get their praise, the reward is not going to be for us in heaven for that. There is no spiritual reward. Because we're seeking not the good of someone else, but instead we're seeking the esteeming of our own reputation, the stroking of our own ego. So what this means practically, and this is deeply convicting, is that you can be the most generous Christian in the amount and proportion and frequency that you give, and you can get no reward in heaven for it if you've done it only for the praise of the people around you. Jesus, that's the wrong way. Here's the right way. When you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So this is an interesting illustration Jesus gives about the intense private nature that should exist around our giving. It should be so private and so lacking in fanfare that your left hand does not know what your right hand is doing. Now listen, I've been wearing this joker for like two and a half weeks, and I feel like a discombobulated giraffe. And there's been times where I thought my right hand and my left hand did not know how to communicate with one another anymore. You take, very, you take your opposable thumb very much for granted, right? But Jesus is saying, you should act and give in such a way that when your right hand gives, your left hand has no clue. You're like, that's impossible. He's trying to help us understand that is the nature of the heart of true gospel-centered giving. No fanfare, no parade, no applause, no attention, no attaboys, just given for the glory of God and the good of other people. And sometimes it may be easy, well, I'm not going to give so other people see me, but here's the more, the more sinister part of our hearts. My heart can still well up with pride because of how awesome I think I am for doing it. And nobody around me may know that I did it, but my sinful heart may be keeping the spiritual ledger of all the time, money, resources that I am investing in other people and that God should be impressed with me about. And in my own heart, there's pride that is unconfessed that I have to repent of. And Jesus is saying, we give to please and honor the Father because I've been so generous to you. Do not get caught up in keeping an account of your awesomeness. Let God do that. And your Father in heaven, hear me. In this text, ten times Jesus says, our Father or your Father. And it's a term of spiritual intimacy. He says, your Father sees your heart, your, give, your giving, your motivations, and he will take account of it and that should be enough. That is your reward. And one day, Jesus will reward you openly for how you've walked in obedience to him on earth. And the hope and the prayer is that on that day, the Father looks at us, and because of what Jesus has done, and because we sought to faithfully live out the gospel in our giving, in other aspects of our life, the statement from God's mouth is, well done, good and faithful servant, enter in the joy of your salvation. So Jesus says, here's the right way and wrong way to give. But then he turns the page, so here's the right way and wrong way to pray. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. They like to stand and pray in the synagogues and street corners that they can be seen by others. They have received their reward. When you pray, go into your room, shut the door, pray to your Father who's in secret, and your Father who's in secret sees you and will reward you. So Jesus explicitly says there's a sin that sin is something that will follow us all the way into the very presence of God in prayer. So prayer is this gift of God, blood-bought by Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit. We're called to do it with boldness and confidence, yet we can do it with a completely selfish heart. One theologian who's dead said this, 
Sin is not merely something that tends to assail us and afflict us when we're in the far off from God, in a faraway country, as it were. Sin is something so terrible that according to our Lord's exposure of it, that it will not only fall us to the gates of heaven, but if it were possible, it would try to enter into heaven itself. You see, we are so sinful to our core and our bones and in our nature that that is why prayer is such a battle. We're waging war with Satan and we're waging war with our own sinful hearts. Because even in the most noblest and, and divine uh, activities as prayer, we could be consumed with self-worship. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, To have a real picture and true understanding of our sin, we must look at some great saint, some unusually devout and devoted man. Look at him there upon his knees in the very presence of his God. Even there, his self is intruding itself. And the temptation is for him to think about himself, to think pleasantly about himself, think pleasurably about his own efforts, and to really in that moment be worshiping himself rather than the God his own, whose knees he's before. That's the, that's the battle of prayer. And Jesus says there's some ways to pray and there's some ways not to pray. He says here's, here's the wrong way. Do not be like the religious hypocrites. They love to stand on the street corners and synagogues to be praised. He has the scribes and the Pharisees in mind. And here's the issue. Jesus is not uh, rebuking the physical posture of how they pray. He's not rebuking the physical place where they pray. There's no beef with being on the street or being in the temple. That's actually the places people commonly prayed in the Bible. It's common during that, take, during that day. It's not the posture nor the place. It's the heart of the person. It's praying with the wrong motive and for the wrong audience. So the Pharisees loved to go to public places, and they would stand out, and they would pray to get approval and respect. So at the daily afternoon, temple sacrifices would come around. There would be this fast. Uh, the, trumpets, the trumpets would sound, and it would signify a time to pray. And some of these cats would plan their day so they would be at the right place at the right time so that when they began to pray in the street corner, everybody could see them. Like, I'm going to be the perfect place where everybody sees me when I face the temple and begin to pray that I can show off my spiritual piety and holiness so when that trumpet sounds, I got center stage for my prayer chops to be shown off. Nothing but self-righteous, self-centered, self-worship. God, I'm awesome. They all know it, and you know it. Here's my religious words. I do great things. You're impressed with me. All of them are impressed with me, and they want to be with me and be like me. Jesus says, that is hypocritical and that is sinful. You're making it about you and not about me. But he said, not only do that on the street corner, you do that in the synagogues. They would go into the very synagogue, into the temple, and they would give these long prayers. And oftentimes, there were these dramatic pauses built in so they would impress people with the cadence of their voice and the measure with which they talked so that people would see how impressive they were even in praying. You see, Jesus addressed this sinful attitude in Luke chapter 18, he gives this parable about the parable of the tax collector um, and the Pharisee. He says this, Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and, he treated, and they treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple, Jesus said to pray, one a Pharisee and one a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners and the unjust and the adulterers are even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all that I get. You are lucky to have me on your team, just like the Lakers are lucky to have LeBron. I am the all-star of this team. Everybody knows that I am great. This guy is worthless. Look at him. He's a tax collector. I am a godly, godly man, and I want you to know that. I want everybody else to know it. And Jesus says, don't be like these guys. 
Don't be like the hypocrites, the Pharisees. But he also said, there's another group to not be like. Do not be like the Gentiles who, who heap up empty phrases, thinking they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So what do the pagan Gentiles often do? They would have this plurality of gods. Old Testament, it was Baal. There was other gods they would worship and pray to. And their prayers would often be like long incantations. Same Baal, 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 Baal. Use uh, rote, repetitious, mechanical, powerless prayers trying to get their God to do something for them. If you, go, if you want to see an example of this, go to 1 Kings chapter 18 in the standoff between Elijah the prophet and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel where uh, Elijah kind of pokes fun at them and they have half this day to try to get Baal to, to uh, bring fire on the sacrifice and they pray and they pray and they say his name and they do all these things. They get very frenetic and start cutting themselves and blood pours out from their bodies and he does not respond and they are, realize that this is futile and then Elijah makes fun of them and says, maybe your God's in the bathroom. Maybe he's asleep. Maybe he's on a holiday, but do more, and I'm sure he'll respond. And God, we know that Baal was a false god, so he never responded. And then simply Elijah prays to God simply. God answers with fire and shows who the one true God is. So Jesus is saying, don't be like a religious hypocrite or the pagan Gentile. There is a true God in heaven. He knows what you need before you ever say a word to him. So that's the crucial understanding of the Lord's Prayer. God says, I know what you need. Your Father in heaven knows what you need before you utter one syllable. So come before me humbly and sincerely, knowing that I actually have the Holy Spirit in you who knows what's in your heart, even if you can't say a word with your mouth. You see, Jesus loved his disciples so much and loved us so much that he says, I know that you're going to struggle with this, so let me teach you how to pray. Let me model for you how you're to pray and come before the Father. Now, I'm not going to walk through the Lord's Prayer this morning uh, for time constraints, but also if you go back into the archives, you'll find a series called Teach Us to Pray, which is about the Lord's uh, Prayer. In a couple weeks, Pastor Brendan's going to circle back to this uh, as we uh, talk about a new discipleship rhythm we're, we're going to be working through called Up, Down, In, and Out. And he's going to use the Lord's Prayer to kind of work through that. So bolo for that soon. Um, but I'm not just skipping it because it's not important. We're going to come back to it. Um, but I want us to understand that the Lord's Prayer given to us by Jesus is an all-inclusive, inexhaustible prayer. If you Google this, thousands of thousands of pages have been written to understand the Lord's Prayer and to flesh it out. And thousands will be more, and we will never get to the depths of the heart of the power of this prayer. But Jesus says, this is the right way to pray. When you pray, he, says, he, he gives this, says, don't go on the straight corner, don't go out in the temple, don't go to show off. Go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father will reward you. And then he gives us the Lord's Prayer. And notice again, he says, when you pray. Not if you pray, but when you pray. And I want to be reminded, because I think most of us would say that of the spiritual disciplines, many of us struggle with prayer. Prayerlessness is as much a sin as hypocritical prayer. Not praying is just as sinful as praying with the wrong attitude. We're commanded to pray. You see, Jesus we read these words, he's not against people praying publicly. He's against people's desire to be seen praying publicly. Listen, I've been in church a long time, and this is just maybe experience. And I've been in church a long time enough to know that I've seen people step on a stage and pray, and it was evident that they were not praying for the Lord, they were praying for themselves. And there's been times when I've done that. And there's been times, if we're honest, we have all done that. And Jesus says, 
prayer is meant to be an intimate time between you and your heavenly father. Go into your room undisturbed, unobserved, and go to your father who knows what you need before you ask and give him all of your undistracted attention. Martin Luther, great reformer, said this. He said, prayer should be frequent, brief, and intense. Ecclesiastes 5 says this, and maybe Martin Luther had this in mind. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you're on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. St. Augustine said, this is, if you think about it for a second, the um, magnitude of these words is, is significant. He said, remove from prayer much speaking, not much praying. Lord, remove from my prayer much speaking, but not much praying. You see, Jesus wants us to understand the right way and the wrong way to give, the right way and the wrong way to pray, and now he's going to talk about the right way and the wrong way, the right way and the wrong way to fast. Now, my guess is most of us, maybe you do, most of us neglect this particular spiritual discipline somewhat frequently. Right? Most of us don't have a long history of how we've used fasting in our life. Maybe we have, maybe we haven't. Most of us have not. But we, some people will fast for health reasons, like intermittent fasting. I eat my calories between 12 and 7. That's great. That's for your health concerns. But very few of us practice fasting for the purpose of godliness. See, biblical fasting is meant to be purposeful abstinence from food for specific spiritual purposes. It's never meant to be an end in and of itself. When we think about Jesus' words here, we have to understand that Jesus is setting a precedent for fasting that was vastly different than that which was commanded in the Old Testament. So when Jesus says, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, and their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, so that your fasting may not be seen by others, but that your father who, by your fathers in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. So here's the deal with biblical fasting as commanded in the Old Testament. See, in the Old Testament, God commanded an annual fast on what was known as the Day of Atonement. There were no other days or occasions in the Old Testament God set aside for the people to fast specifically but the Day of Atonement. But the scribes and the Pharisees took that and went well beyond it and added all these other rules and restrictions. Because as I said a minute ago in that parable Jesus shared about the tax collector of the Pharisee, they got to the point where they were fasting twice a week. Not once a year, but twice a week. Because they wanted to show everyone just how very spiritual they were. How their religion had made them so very godly. See, Jesus is not against fasting. There are places in the Bible where Jesus commends fasting as good and right. But there are no places where Jesus commands people to fast. In the book of Acts, the early church did practice fasting often in prayer. As they went through decisions like appointing elders and commissioning of missionaries, it was important, it was significant, and it was, they used it for spiritual purposes. But it's never meant, I'm going to fast and God must do what, I do, what I'm fasting over. I'm going to take this, this fast and I'm going to use it to make God beholden to my wish so that what I'm fasting over, God has to give me no matter what. We don't get to move God to a place of being beholden to us by anything that we do. See, in a, in a very pharisaical way, these Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes would make a spectacle of themselves. Jesus says, this is what they do. They would make themselves look miserable. And they would walk around gloomy and disfigured and downtrodden with ashes on their head. And they would not wash themselves. And so that others would see just how very painful their fast was. Oh, oh, 
fasting. Look at me. It's so hard. I'm dirty, Lord, but I'm fasting and I'm hungry, but I'm fasting, Lord, because I love you. And I do this twice a week. And everybody would see them and they made a spectacle of their spiritual devotion to God. And it was superficial and it was sensationalized and Jesus condemned it. It had nothing to do with God. It had everything to do with them. They had taken what should be a private commitment and made it a public spectacle. They had missed the purpose of fasting biblically was to nourish one's hunger for God and reduce one's hunger for the world. See, the Beatitude said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for what? Righteousness. For they shall be satisfied. You see, when we choose to partake in a biblical spiritual fast, we're essentially seeking to let our appetite for God exceed our appetite for everything else in our life. That, that hunger and thirst for food should be, uh, we, we do that, we give up whatever those things are so that our appetite for God would increase, so that God's glory in our lives would, would be greater than our physical appetite, our sexual appetite, our, our appetite for material things would pale in comparison to who we are in Jesus. And fasting can be helpful, can reorient us, refocus us back to who Jesus is and what we're called to be in him. But it's not meant to show off to other people and put it all over Facebook and Instagram. Hey guys, I'm doing a 40-day fast. Every day I'm going to keep an account of what I look like as I fast. And you can be impressed and hashtag my name, Jason's Fasting. (laughs) But I'm telling you, if Twitter existed in that day, they would have done that. See, the stone cold truth, and I'm coming to a close, is that we are all guilty of doing spiritual things for unspiritual reasons. And there have been at times, maybe this week for you, where I so may have wanted the applause of people more than I wanted the praise of God. You see, we can succumb to these in big and small ways, and I'm grateful, hear me, I'm grateful that Jesus loved me enough to not just go after me changing my behaviors, but go after my heart. And to change who I am at the core and redeem both my heart and my behaviors and my motivations. And that Jesus fully submitted to and lived for the glory of God. And here's the reality, and I'm going to close just by reminding us that when I give selfishly, when I pray selfishly, or when I fast selfishly, Jesus has already done those three things perfectly on my behalf. When I read the word of God selfishly, when I serve selfishly, Jesus has already done those things perfectly on my behalf. Because when Jesus came, he came not for the recognition or applause of people. He never wanted recognition. When he gave of himself, he gave completely. Not for his own benefit. He healed sick people. He touched lepers. He made Lame people walk, he gave the blind sight, he set demon-possessed people free, and he never did any of that to get his name in the Jerusalem Times or on the who's who's list of rabbis in, in the city. He did not want recognition. Most often, if you read the Gospels, Jesus did it and said, tell nobody what I've done. Jesus came to serve and not be served. Jesus came... And allowed his right hand and his left hand to have a six-inch spike driven through it. So that those who are spiritually bankrupt could be made rich through his sacrifice. See, when Jesus prayed, he never stood on the street corner or he never went to the synagogue to get attention from the people. Almost every time you find Jesus praying in the Bible, he's by himself. 
with the Father on the mountain, in the garden, out alone in a desolate place with his Father, praying in secret, praying in the daytime, in the morning, in the evening. He prayed to commune with his Father. He prayed before he, four decisions were made. He prayed before he selected the 12 disciples. In John 17, the high priestly prayer, Jesus prayed in front of his disciples. He didn't do that often, but in that moment he did not to impress them or show off. He prayed, hear me, to encourage them and pray to the Father for them. You read that prayer and you're, you hear that right before Jesus got to that prayer, he had just told the disciples about the tribulations and the trials and the persecution that was going to come. And then he prayed to the Father on their behalf to strengthen them, to not take them out of the world, but to watch over them. And in that very same prayer, Jesus prayed for all those who would believe, which is you and I. In the gardens of Gethsemane, Jesus pled with the Father right before he went to the cross. Father, if it's, if it's your will and it's possible, please take this cup away from the cup of your wrath. He brought the disciples and said, boys, pray with me. They took power naps. And Jesus prayed by himself and drops of blood came out of, his, out of his head because he was praying with such fervency, asking for the Father to take the cup away, but for the Father's will to be done. Jesus poured out his heart unto the Father. And then on the cross, as he was in the midst of extreme anguish, what did Jesus do? He prayed and asked for forgiveness from those who put him there. And I'm not going to go into all the depths about fasting and how Jesus modeled, but we know after Jesus was baptized, he went into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. He fasted from food, he fasted from water, and after those days, Satan came to him and tempted him and tried to lead him astray at Jesus' most vulnerable moment, and Jesus fought Satan with the word of God. The Spirit empowered Jesus in his exhausted state. The Spirit empowered him, and it says after he defeated Satan in the wilderness, he returned in the power of the Holy Spirit. We have no other record of Jesus fasted in the New Testament. The scribes and the Pharisees would rebuke Jesus' followers for not fasting. They would try to rebuke them and correct them and tell them that they were in sin. And Jesus was leading them astray by not ordering them to fast. But Jesus said, they don't need to fast because I'm here with them. And nobody, they didn't understand it. Jesus said, they don't need to fast right now because I'm with them. But then he says, I also, moving forward, they don't need to keep this day of atonement thing. I fulfilled all righteousness. The sacrifices are not going to be done. It's not necessary. I've done all that is necessary to fulfill all of these religious requirements and righteous requirements of the law. These things are no longer necessary. I've made atonement for my people. No need to fast. No need to make sacrifices. It is all finished. And the people did not understand, but the disciples would learn that Jesus was trying to teach them that he was all that they had longed for and he's all that they needed. You see, I know that a lot of this may not be new information like, well, we talked about giving and praying and we talked about fasting what is the application? Here's the application. It's short and simple. This is not super, I don't have a cool illustration. I don't have a cool firework to tell you. Here's what I just wanted to tell you from this text. If you know Jesus and you're in Christ, you have been given a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. You have nothing to prove and you have nobody to impress. You are perfect before the Father because you are in Jesus and our application is, do we just need to live like it's true? I need to live out my salvation with boldness, my adoption into God's family with humility, my righteousness that has been given to me, live it out with joy so that God gets all of the glory. I need to be more concerned with God's glory than my uh, pleasing of other people. And we need to rest in the reality that God knows, the beautiful part, Jesus reminds us three times, your father knows what you need. He sees what you do in secret. 
He is for you, he is with you, and he will reward you. And his acceptance and approval are all that you need. And the beautiful thing is, it's what you've already been given in Christ. That is why the gospel is so scandalous and paradoxical. But here's what I also know, and this is where I close, and then I'm going to pray, and we will sing. I know not everybody in here this morning has a relationship with Jesus. Some of you are very religious, but you have no relationship. You're going through the motions, and we sang in that first song, but your heart has never been captured by Christ. And I pray that even through this text, which is really largely Jesus preaching to those who are his followers, I want you to hear the gospel and the invitation that Jesus offers you to today. You will never get to God on your own. You need him. And today may be the day that you will trust into him and realize his righteousness is a righteousness that you desperately need. And he is a satisfaction that, that you are longing for and the identity that you desperately need. And he and he alone can give that to you. That today you would find rest for your very weary soul and look to Jesus the Savior. And believe him and trust him and find in him all that your soul has ever longed for.